this young woman and I stood in the entry of her building, and I was careful not to stand too close. It was a weird situation. Here's how we got there. Sometime in the year or so before the pandemic, I was working in what was then my normal spot, which is the La Colombe at the corner of Clark and Foster. It's got those big windows all the way around. And as I sat there, and it was full that day, on the Foster side of the shop, I and everyone else in the place saw a young woman making her way down the street, holding on to the side of the building. And it was so clear that she was in pain. And basically all of us in the shop tracked her slow movement. I wasn't sure what to do. I pretended to work, but I was watching too. So March 7th, 203, it was the 14th birthday of the Roman emperor's younger son and the crowd there in Carthage had gathered to celebrate. In the center of the arena stood two young women side by side. The other prisoners had already been killed, some by soldiers and some by animals. And as their teacher, who, who had probably been their teacher, died, the crowd had jeered about his blood. A saving bath, a saving bath, laughing about their stupid little practice of baptism. And the women turned to each other and kissed. They did. Here's how they got there. It was against Roman law to be Christian, but it was the kind of law that was like spottily enforced based on regional differences and concerns and interfamilial conflicts and politics. The Roman Empire may have had bigger fish to fry than a grassroots and statistically unimpressive new cult. The empire was a quarter century out from a pandemic that had crippled the economy the empire was 10 years out from a year when there had been five emperors in one year, one executed, assassinated, betrayed right after the other. The empire at that point still had like another two or 300 good years left, but its golden age was already behind it, whether the people and leaders knew it or not. So like tiny groups of people gathering in houses to pray and share meals and do this weird bathing thing that was supposed to save them was mostly not a big deal. As long as those folks kept their heads down, the empire mostly didn't have any time or energy or desire to get involved. But then in, in North Africa in the year 203, it did get involved. For reasons that aren't really clear, the empire arrested at least three men and these two women, Perpetua and Felicity. Felicity enslaved and Perpetua a free Roman citizen. Felicity eight months pregnant and Perpetua still nursing this infant son. Perpetua's mother was a Christian, not arrested, so that's weird, and her brother was also studying to be baptized, also not arrested. Her father was a pagan and just terrified for her. He just begged her to say she wasn't a Christian. And she said, and this is in the Latin, which I find funny, she said, do you see for the sake of example this vase lying there or pitcher or whatever it is, or whatever it is is in the Latin? And then it's also weird considering where she was going rhetorically. Can you call this pitcher or vase or whatever it is by any other name? And her dad conceded that he couldn't. Same, she said. I can't call myself anything other than Christian or whatever she was. 
And then in between her inter interrogation, which is when they had that exchange about the pitcher, in between that and going to prison, Perpetua and the others were baptized. So that was 203. By the late 300s, Perpetua and Felicity were being venerated. In 393 and 397, there were two separate church councils that addressed the problem of churches treating their story as scripture. By the 500s, they were depicted in sacred art that still exists today. They were venerated because they had really stood for something, when there was something to stand for, you know, in the centuries before the empire adopted Christianity. Their story was used to lift up suffering. Their story was used to lift up virtues, their courage, their defiance that they chose faith over family, setting aside their womanly weakness. Yeah, that's how it got used, because they were a model, even for men, men who admired them more readily than they imitated them. That's also Augustine. There are terrible parts of this story that made me regret deciding to preach on it. Terrible parts of the story. And I don't mean the parts about death in a Roman amphitheater. I mean how Perpetua was, Perpetua was valorized for covering up as she died, covering up her thigh, concerned to the end about modesty. How already having suffering wound, suffered wounds, she supposedly asked for a hairpin because it was unbefitting for a woman of God to go to her death disheveled. There are parts in the story about how the saints prayed together in prison so that Felicity would go into labor early. Because even the Romans wouldn't execute a pregnant woman. The way the story got told for centuries was what a blessing that she miraculously had this child early so she could pass from blood to blood, from childbirth to death. Terrible parts of the story, like how even the Roman crowd roaring with bloodlust when they saw these young mothers vulnerable on the sands of the arena demanded that they be covered up. It was easier to watch their deaths that way. And, and so, yes, also a terrible part of the story is the death in a Roman amphitheater, how due to the grace of God, they survived first one assault and then the other and were removed back to the gates of life and then brought out again the whole ordeal prolonged and then glorified for centuries in churches. And then there are the weird parts of the stories, visions and dreams, dreams like God, a celestial shepherd milking sheep and giving a bowl full of it to Perpetua, who woke up still tasting the sweetness, a dream of a ladder that was all daggers and, and swords with a serpent at the bottom a serpent whose head Perpetua stepped on on her way toward heaven. A dream, too, when Perpetua saw herself in the arena, stripped for battle, as was typical, whereupon she realized she was a man. And, and for this reason, some people also understand her to be a saint of trans people. And I don't know when that understanding started, and I don't know when Felicity and Perpetua began to be understood as the patron saint of queer couples. For many, many centuries... The kiss they kissed right before they died was widely understood as the kiss of peace, a liturgical kiss, which is maybe like the least romantic of all kisses. Their relationship was widely understood to be that of Christian siblings, a model of how friendships grew in spite of social divisions. An enslaved woman, dear friends with a wealthy free woman, their relationship, of snap, uh, their relationship a snapshot of what made that tiny grassroots cult so unusual. 
those house churches a place where there was neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female, a place where social norms could be upended, especially if everybody just kept their heads down. For many centuries, they were models of what was possible, even in the most extreme circumstances, models of what faithfulness looked like in life and especially in death, models of what it looked like in this ancient context to breach norms for the sake of the gospel, what it looked like to be vulnerable, what it looked like to be an outsider, and their story was held up and told even while and after the faithful aligned with the empire, even while and after the outsiders became insiders even while and after new social norms were ossified and deified. The story was pitched and received as an example of Latter-day Saints, of proofs that, a proof that contemporary stories were as authoritative as old ones. The story was meant to demonstrate that we too can be holy, us, the ones living here and now in 210 or 2022, but as with many martyr stories, what ended up becoming important was how they died, that they died, what they sacrificed, their babies, their lives, their bodies. Like many martyr stories, what people cared about was the goriness of their death, how exceptional it was and how exceptional that made them. And pretty quickly, their contemporary example became ancient and indispensable and also inaccessible and unrealistic and improbable and eventually kind of grotesque and problematic. The word martyr in Greek, by the way, I mean, that's the language it comes from and the language of the New Testament, the language of some versions of this story. The word martyr doesn't mean exceptional and courageous death in the face of gory violence. It just means witness. So I watched this woman slowly around the coffee shop and she got to maybe the doorway, the corner of the shop and I had everything all spread out, you know, my computer and my bag with my wallet and, and my coat and everything all spread out. I thought, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna get up and ask her if I can help? I mean, if I get up and talk to her, then I'll just be also in front of the window with her in front of all these people and am I doing it so they think I'm a nice person, or what's even my point? And I waited and kept watching as she made her way around the building, leaning on it with a hand to her body. And finally, I think probably blushing, I got up and left the coffee shop and left my stuff at the table and knew that everybody was watching because we had all been watching this woman totally exposed. And by the time I got out to the street, she was gone. And I realized that maybe she had gone into the doorway of the next apartment, which is like the next door after La Colombe. And, and I looked in the door and I saw that she was in the entryway by the mailbox. And I thought, man, this is so weird. I'm gonna scare her and what do I have to offer her? And, and so I opened the door and without going in, I said, hey, um, I don't wanna, um, like, are you okay? Can I?" can I help you in some way? And she just told me the story, which is like these women, her body mattered, her gender mattered. She was 23 and had just had an IUD put in and she said, it really hurts. They told me it would hurt, but it really hurts. And I said, oh, 
I'm so sorry, that's so scary. Um, talked to her about the care she had and the support she had and gingerly asked if she needed help up to her place, trying not to be weird and trying not to scare her. And don't worry, I didn't at any point give her the kiss of peace, all right? I don't know that it made any difference at all. For Perpetua and Felicity, the kiss does seem to have sealed the deal. Like whenever it happened, modern Christians began to find in that kiss and in their relationship something more and deeper than just Christian sisterhood. Modern Christians began to see a loving mutuality of partnership, began to see, one writer even says, a gloss of eroticism, which I'll tell you, I don't see that, that eroticism in this one Greek, one Latin line about a liturgical kiss. I do see them objectified in the narrative, their lactating bodies exposed, their bloodied limbs still somehow raising a question of modesty instead of survival. I don't see a gloss of eroticism, but I'll tell you what else, what I see doesn't matter. What matters is how the model of faith in this story and other scripture, sorry Augustine, how the model breaks out of its original context its own time and place to speak to people here and now. How these ancient and indispensable texts bear witness to God's grace and works to build people up. What matters is that people here and now can find themselves in the story. People who have been made outsiders, who have been made vulnerable. People can find themselves in this model and recognize that they too may be called to be saints in our own context, our own time and place. What matters is how new, now instances of faith might also honor God and comfort people. So after Perpetua fixed her hair and covered her thigh, she saw that Felicity had been knocked down, and she went over and offered her a hand and lifted her up. And that's when they both stood there together, ready for what was coming. And I am not a saint, not for going after that young woman finally, like I almost didn't for one thing. Or maybe I am a saint, actually, but for no more or other reason than you are. Being a saint might just be living as authentically as we can in our context. And I think that maybe Perpetua and Felicity aren't saints because they died, but because they lived in their context as they were called to. And maybe the ones who will come after us will get it wrong, too. They'll misattribute to us virtues that we don't think of as virtues. They'll get our genders wrong or our motivations wrong, or they'll misunderstand our relationships to each other and the world around us. They'll count our deaths as glorious instead of unjust. Or maybe they'll find themselves in us and what they hope for and who they're called to be in whatever circumstances they are. Maybe they'll see that every place they ever are is the arena, is the coffee shop, is the prison, is the prayer rug. Maybe they'll see that in every story there is a place for them and that in every kiss of peace there is a witness to God's love. <laughs> 